You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's basically uh, UFC 205 all the time this week. And why not? Why wouldn't it be? Why not indeed? Three title fights. Potentially the biggest buy rate in the history of the company. The first ever event in New York City at Madison Square Garden. It's a lot to talk about. There is. A lot, a lot of air in the room is going to get sucked up by this, you might say. Indeed. Uh, we've got some uh, odds and ends to get to here. About, also about the uh, Ultimate Fighter Latin America Season 3 live finale, which is just a mouthful. I love just you say. being forced to say those words. Were you pretty excited that Martin Bravo went out there and won the lightweight uh, tournament of the Ultimate Fighter Latin America Season 3 over Claudio Puelas via TKO? Was I? Yeah. The Boy, good thing, howdy. The good thing about that is when, they, they, when you got these, uh, these six-fight main cards, uh, they roll out the tough Latin America Season 3 tournament final about the time that things should be kind of wind, either winding down or picking up steam, you know, about the time that uh, your internal clock expects the co-main event. And instead, you get a video package telling you about each guy's hard scrabble rise to this pinnacle of the sport. I mean, you want to talk about sucking the air out of the room. It's like slowly letting the air out of a balloon <laughs> when that happens. That's about how it feels, yeah. We've got music this week, again, from our friend... The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out over on Facebook at facebook.com slash the fifth element, at Twitter at the fifth element, and soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official. Again, that's the word the with an A and the number five in fifth element. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co main event podcast. In round number one, there are rumors this Saturday's super fight with Eddie Alvarez will be the last time we see Conor McGregor in the octagon for a while, maybe because he wants to go make some babies with longtime girlfriend D. Devlin, to which new UFC ownership likely says, nervously, uh, what about our profit thresholds, bro? And in round number two, you think all those karate dudes that Hoist Gracie choked out in the early UFCs are going to pull their old geese out and shadow box around the room while Stephen Thompson fights Tyron Woodley for the UFC welterweight title? God, I hope so. And in round number three, it'll be worth it just to hear Mike Goldberg have to try to say Joanna Yajaychik and Karolina Kovalkiewicz for 25 straight minutes. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from R. Bleasy Esquire. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know what's going on over at R. Bleasy Esquire's house, but uh, I hope to be invited to the Christmas party. Well, Roland Bleasy has been coming strong with his emails to the podcast in recent weeks and perhaps it's because he's a man of letters (laughs) perhaps it is 
He writes, what a weekend. Phil Davis wore Liam McGeary around the around like a button Friday night, and I was all set to write you guys about that, but then El Kukui, the motherfucking boogeyman himself, Tony Ferguson, followed up his stellar performance by Iminari rolling past the old cursed cliche of claiming he plans to win two titles before putting his hands on one straight on one straight to claiming he'll take three titles. Three titles? Is he thinking his claim is so brazen that those fickle deities of Mount Zions, or Sprawlhalla, if you nasty, won't strike him down immediately, or more likely, does he just not give a fuck? Discuss on either or both, question mark. It's a yeah. double whammy question right here. Because lot- we get a little Phil Davis, Liam McGeary on Bellator from Friday night, and then you get into uh, the main event of, the, of Saturday's UFC show where... Anthony Armand Ferguson took out Rafael Dos Anjos in an important lightweight contender bout. It feels like a lot to to discuss just in in itself, the El Kakui win over uh, Rafael Dos Anjos. It sure does. I don't Ordinarily, know. we would certainly spend an entire round of the podcast Ordinarily, it. under normal circumstances, which these are not, but Far clearly. from normal circumstances this week. So I'll just keep my comments on it brief and say that the things I was really impressed with in Tony Ferguson's performance there was for one thing how he he made some adjustments during the fight how he kept it flowy at key moments against Rafael Dos Anjos how he took some of those shots that normally when uh RDA lands those that's about when the fight starts to be almost over yeah he took them and took some of them just right on the button and didn't even flinch kept going he was kicking this man in his shin Chad on purpose mm-hmm like a a angry child just kicking him in the shin and just being like that hurts us both let's see who doesn't mind that that when you see that kind of stuff that's when you're like all right tony ferguson is on some other shit over there and yeah. i like it yeah he is you know one of the things that i maybe didn't even stop to think about while these guys were having this fight but kind of dawned on me later is that you see we're going to talk about diego sanchez's win over marcin held also uh, here in listener mail, but like in that fight, you see a dude like a held who, uh, you know, is a highly touted prospect and, and a submission stylist and came in with all this hype and stuff like that, uh, and had a reasonable career in Bellator before even coming to the UFC. You see that dude gas out kind of like when, when he gets the Diego Sanchez put on him in uh, Mexico city, in Mexico, in city. his UFC debut. And then, and you, and that's, and you, th- when that's happening, you think, Oh, the altitude, Mexico city, this guy's gassing out, you know, UFC jitters, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't even stop to think that Anthony Armand Ferguson and Rafael Dos Anjos pretty much buried the needle from start to finish in this 25-minute fight, just do, setting a crazy pace almost the entire way. Like it wasn't even a thing. Like it right. wasn't even a, a struggle. And they're doing that at altitude in Mexico City which just adds an additional layer of like how impressive this main event was between these two dudes. Also adds an extra layer of understanding of the hair's breadth between the top guys at lightweight right now. That Rafael Dos Anjos was on top. He goes out there in this one. You know, getting eye poked didn't do him any favors. Uh, but he 
he managed to come back at some points in this fight, and then Tony Ferguson just met him every step of the way and came back with something extra. And the, the difference between those guys is really not that great. The yeah. difference between any of the guys, like from top five on up at lightweight, is really not that great. It's just, you just have to fall off a little bit, have a little bit of a bad night, maybe get poked a little bit in your eye, and there you go. Next thing you know, you you're go from champion to 0-2. It's brutal out there, man. It really is, especially. And Rafael Dos Anjos started strong in this fight, too. Throughout most of the first round, I was kind of thinking to myself, uh, the Irishman, who's going to be headlining the biggest show in UFC history next weekend against Eddie Alvarez for the lightweight title, might have been lucky that this version of Rafael Dos Anjos didn't make it to the cage when those guys were supposed to have their fight a while back. Uh, but then, of course, you see Tony Ferguson, even more impressive, sort of like... Uh, uh, meets that pressure and and overcomes it and route to his own unanimous decision victory. And it is like, man, what a slippery slope for Dos Anjos to be, even though he was one of the more disrespected UFC champions while he held the lightweight title, just in terms of like his drawing ability and whether or not he was an exciting fighter. Speaking of, uh, as another aside, the other thing I was thinking as I was watching this was... Has Rafael Dos Anjos always been this fun? And I just didn't notice it because, especially in the early parts of this fight, when he's kind of putting it on Tony Ferguson, like this was impressive and enjoyable for me to watch. And it kind of made me feel bad for maybe some of the misgivings that I had about the Dos Anjos title reign, where he was known more as like a takedown and top control guy. I don't, I mean, it depends what fight you look at. The title reign wasn't that long, for one thing, you know, and the. Uh... His his title defense against Donald God, it Cerrone felt just endless. <laughs> the title defense against Donald Cerrone didn't last very long, and so he didn't you didn't get a chance to see him do a whole lot in that one. Uh, you know he did that to Anthony Pettis, but you know he's been fun in the past. You know he he put it on Benson Henderson uh, back before he became champion. So I think we had reason to believe that he had that stuff in him. I, what just amazed me about this fight was how. Tony Ferguson just never backed down an inch, even when RDA was was giving it to him pretty stiff out there. And when you're just when you're purposely kicking a guy in the shin with your shin, like you're not aiming for a different part of his leg and you just accidentally hit his shin, like you're kicking him in the shin and then kind of like looking in his face to be like, what do you want to do about it? Like that's when you know that this guy has prepared for a certain kind of fight. And it's one in which you both get your whole shit broke. <laughs> and one of you just feels like it will bother you more than it will bother him. So Tony Ferguson, now I believe he's won nine fights in a row. That's right. All of them in the UFC. Uh, and is 22 and three, which is one of those kind of surprisingly awesome records when, Sneaks you, up on when you. you see it on paper. Yeah. In fact, his decision loss to Michael Johnson way back in 2012, which was his last loss, that's the dude's only loss dating all the way back to 2009. So like, a pretty impressive run. Although you uh, could point out the the questionable and uh, split decision he won over Danny Castillo, oh, right. who was quick yeah, to yeah. point out that he held a grown man down. Yes. Remember that one? Yeah. Where we had to point out that if you need to say that what you just did was to a grown man, then it's probably not as impressive as you would like to make it sound. Well, he doesn't have to make any excuses now because he's out there with nine wins in a row. And uh, depending on what happens with the lightweight title... Uh, which we will talk about more in this show as we move along. He either might be sitting pretty, or maybe he would—he's uh, going to have to go elsewhere to look for one of those three titles that he plans to hold at the same time. Which, before we move on, and I do want to talk just for a couple minutes about Phil Davis uh, winning the Bellator Light Heavyweight Championship over Liam McGeary, since uh, our friend 
uh, Bleezy Esquire brings that up here. Tony Ferguson just not only sticking his finger in the eye of Rafael Dos Anjos, also right in the eye of the vindictive MMA gods, saying that he wants to Brandon Vera style True. basically hold every title in the UFC at once. Yeah, that'll, that'll never go poorly before you even have been granted a shot at one title to start looking at every division that you can conceivably hit and saying you want those titles as well. Sure. That's, that's not going to invite the wrath of the gods or anything. Never has. My advice to Tony Ferguson would be don't ride a motorcycle. Don't go out on a boat. Maybe uh, just don't leave the house. Avoid like, escalators. That seems like a place you could get hurt. Put yourself inside a protective like plexiglass shatterproof box mm-hmm. and just just chill for a while until someone else comes along to provoke the wrath. Let the heat die down, yeah, you're let saying? let the heat die down of the uh, MMA gods. You know, the other thing, though, that this Tony Ferguson performance made me think about was, man, are you also even more excited about seeing what the hell happens with Lando Venata, the dude who almost put Tony Ferguson away in his last fight? Yeah, I am. Because... Now you get a little perspective on it. Lando Venata seems like he could be a straight badass. He might be. Do we have another fight booked for him at all? Here, let me see if there's a uh, a note. Uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's expected got, he's got, to fight John McDessie. That's right. John McDessie at UFC 206. So there you go. That seems like the kind of opponent at this point that they give you if they want to give you a chance to show out. Yeah, yes. Uh, ben, Phil Davis, UFC light, or I mean, Bellator, former UFC fighter, current Bellator light heavyweight champion, uh, beats Liam McGeary at Bellator 163 on Friday night to like kind of very little fanfare as far as I'm concerned, like made a little splash when it happened. But several days later, uh, all we have are the memes of, uh, the face you make when you win. Did did you see this? I did not see this. How did I miss some memes? I love memes. There's a meme out there of the face you make when you become UFC champion and then the face Phil Davis makes when they wrap the Bellator belt around his waist. You mean to tell me that you saw this meme, which you know I would enjoy. You, you, You saw this and you didn't think, you know what? My friend Ben might like to see this. You do not want me to send you every internet meme that I come across. <laughs> I will tell you that right now. I mean, you can exercise a little judgment, but come on, man. You know this coincides with my interests. Is this the problem with Bellator? Because you remember, Phil Davis goes over there during the Dynamite 1 card, makes his debut back in September of last year, beats the big homie Manny Newton and Francis Carmont, Frankie Cars, if you nasty, uh, on the same night. And I feel like... The general impression was coming out of that event. Oh, Phil, this could be good for Phil Davis. Like he seems to have revived some momentum. This seems to be a good spot for him. Maybe he will take Bellator by storm. Well, then he beats uh, Mo Lawal by unanimous decision uh, in July or May of this year, and then now he wins the Bellator Light Heavyweight Championship from Liam McGeary. But I feel like it's kind of like an exercise in Bellator not being able to maintain our interest and/or momentum. Am I wrong? Is that unfair to say? Because I feel like Phil Davis started his Bellator run maybe with our attention and some momentum, and now he's the champion, and it's kind of like, eh. Okay, how could it have played out differently where you would not feel that way? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's kind of Bellator's impossible task, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe if Liam McGeary goes out there and pulls off an awesome choke and submits Phil Davis, I think the problem is kind of, when you get these people from the UFC where the narrative on them is that, all right, we saw their ceiling in the UFC, and then they come over there, and they start beating your guys. And, you know, 
beating them where there's no question that they're beating them, but also it's not making for super spectacular highlight reel stuff that makes people think, what is this Bellator thing? I got to get done on this next Friday night. But, you know, seriously going out there and dominating them, then does it just make the hardcore fans or the fans that, that really follow this sport think, well, that's just proof that the best dudes in Bellator can't beat the like right. eighth best dudes. Like in the it, UFC. it would have been better strength of schedule wise for Liam McGeary to beat Phil Davis, right? Right, definitely if you're Bellator. Yeah, because then we would have been like, oh, Liam McGeary, what's this? That's right. Next but no, question. but no, but no. Now we got Phil Davis over there, champion. And now what? Making a face like he just won runner up at the for a free basket of wings or something. <laughs> I don't know. From Next question this week comes to us from Scott Reese, who writes, Upside, this weekend was the first time in recent memory that I've seen Diego Sanchez win a clear-cut decision. Downside, is Diego Sanchez's win the worst thing that could have happened to him in terms of his long-term health? I was really hoping he'd announce his retirement. <laughs> oh, after this fight, with the thanks for a great career remarks. Um, yeah. I got something to say about this Diego Sanchez. Okay, fight. by all means. It better not be that you saw some awesome memes about it and decided to keep them to yourself. <laughs> no, I, I think you've pro you're probably familiar with all of the Diego Sanchez memes, <laughs> which are many <laughs> okay. and which are awesome. This victory, Diego Sanchez going out and beating Marcin Held, the 24-year-old submission whiz whose UFC debut was deemed – he came into this – Held came into this fight damn near a 3-to-1 favorite. And his UFC debut was deemed important enough to be the co-main event on this kind of highly regarded cable television card, especially after, uh, what was it? They had uh, uh, Kelvin Gastelum and uh, Jorge Masvidal had been scheduled for this card, but then that got scratched. And Kelvin Gastelum, Gastelum had to go over there and bounced to fill UFC a hole at UFC 205. To fight, to fight Donald Cerrone. Uh, Diego Sanchez ends up kind of whipping him like a rented mule down the stretch in this fight. And the thing that I liked about it, Ben, was that this was the Diego Sanchez who I like and who is good. Because I feel like people who maybe have not been around the sport that long or maybe even people that have but forgot that Diego Sanchez was always kind of crazy and would always... uh entertain you if what you wanted to do was get into a slugfest with him but for like damn near the first 20 fights of Diego Sanchez's career that wasn't really who he was as a fighter you know when he won the first season of the ultimate fighter and went 17 and 0 uh as a as a rookie he was a takedowns top control and like underrated submissions guy who would just wear you out yeah. with his cardio. Just elbow a hole in your face. And that's, yes, he literally elbowed a hole in that poor man's Who did he do that to? I'll have to look that up. Uh, but then he kind of like chained, got enamored with the, the like, I assume money that he made and attention that he got and high, high profile bookings. And, and like, you didn't have to well, twist. I don't think it's just that. I well, think it no, was that he was fighting to... guys where he, he couldn't do that as effectively to them anymore. He couldn't just take them down and maul them from the top. So you think he, he it was Brian Gassaway? By the way, okay. UFC 54 was the poor man who got a hole literally elbowed in the the, the bone structure of his face by Diego Sanchez. Uh, anyway, Diego Sanchez, th this was kind of a return to form for him, I thought, in this win over Marcin Held. And it's not like I think he's back or he's going to go out there 
and, you know, make a run at the title or whatever he said he was going to do. But like a Diego Sanchez that takes people down and kind of like imposes his ground and pound on them is a Diego Sanchez that I feel like can be effective against a certain uh, quality of opponent in this division. And a Diego Sanchez that maybe can have a couple more fights without putting his like long-term health any more terribly at risk than it already is. Allow me to play devil's advocate here. I, I assumed you would. And as I say this as a dude who, who likes Diego Sanchez, has enjoyed watching him over the years, I think that the narrative you're crafting here is that Diego Sanchez went out there and rediscovered who he was, had a return to form, and really what I saw happen was Diego Sanchez go out there, uh, find himself in some deep trouble at points during round one, then when Marcin Held both got tired and made some mental and tactical errors in the fight, seized on them and never let go. And that's to his credit. I mean, he, I'm not saying that like he does not deserve credit for that because he did use some veteran savvy in this fight and some good old-fashioned Diego Sanchez crazy, like when he wall walks and then flings, uh, wall, wall, wall walks to try to get out of that guillotine well, and then yes. fl- flings Marcin Held like at the ref, basically. That was uh, the moment it all turned around. <laughs> well, that, is, that it did seem like uh, Marcin Held expended a lot of energy in that first round trying to put him away. Looked like he, he was doing really well against him, and then he comes out for round two, and, you know, you, the leg lock game doesn't really work that well on a guy like Diego Sanchez. You know, you're not really going to take him down. It, you end up on your back against him. It's just nothing but trouble. He's probably going to take you down when you get tired, and you're going to be too exhausted to get up. I think that, that that's more what I saw, and that doesn't mean that it's not a sign that Diego Sanchez still has some life left in him. I'm sure there's a lot of dudes out there that Diego Sanchez can still beat. And that when you have that kind of cardio and that refusal to quit in a fight, that can beat a lot of people on its own, especially with the, the veteran knowledge that he has. But it didn't make me think Diego Sanchez is back, baby. Oh, no, that's already said that. I'm not saying he's back. It's, it would be unfortunate, cliched, and would kind of like undercut the victory, I feel like, to go out and say Diego Sanchez is back. Uh, one thing that happened to Marcin Held, I thought, was that he just didn't have anything else to go to. Like, he didn't have a plan B when it turned out uh, he wasn't going to be able to leg lock Diego Sanchez, which I thought was was one of those things that makes it seem like maybe Held needs some more seasoning before he, he tries to fight upper-level guys. And when, I'm, not, I'm also not saying that Diego Sanchez went into this fight with that game plan. God knows what Diego Sanchez goes into any fight with, with any game plan. But, like... As a longtime observer of the sport, to me, it was uh, like a feel-good win for Diego Sanchez and notable to see him go out there uh, and do something besides this like swing from the heels, uh, don't care about your brain, take every punch you possibly can style that he's been utilizing uh, in a lot of his fights over the last few years. Uh, and I feel like if he wanted to take that lesson from this fight, it's there. Whether okay. he will... Come on, man. Diego Sanchez we're talking about here. Um, you want to just, before you look at it or anything, tell me how old Diego Sanchez is? Diego Sanchez is 34. 34, Chad. How? Four years younger than me. How is that possible? He got an early start, I guess. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Daniel Delaney, who writes, Guys, would like to hear you discourse a bit about Alexis, Alexa Grasso's UFC debut. She pretty well rearranged the face of Heather Joe Clark this past weekend after stirring up some hype in Invicta. I think she seems like a fun challenger for champion, comma, Joanna, though I admit I'm a little worried about Alexa's admitted hero worship of Joanna. Thoughts? 
I think I agree that that is a potentially fun fight, and please don't make it too soon because I think if you if you rush Alexa uh, Gra- if you if you rush Alexa Grasso into that fight, you know after one or two more UFC fights, just because you're running out of people to throw against Joanna Champion, which I can understand how you would feel compelled to do that. That I think would not be in the best service of everybody. I think that she just needs a little more time before she's ready for something like that. No, I agree. She's only 23 years old, 9-0 and now, made her first uh, fight in the UFC, made her UFC debut this past weekend. She seems like a heck of a prospect, uh, and probably her, her uh, hailing from Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico, uh, does not hurt in terms of like uh, the UFC's continued efforts to try to establish itself in Mexico, if that continues under the new ownership. Uh, and yeah, there's just no reason to, to fast forward her into a fight with Joanna Jacek, even though as a matchup of styles, it seems pretty fun. I agree. Uh, and Alexa Grasso seems to be very technical and also have a little bit of the mean spiritedness in like, as the fight is happening. Yeah. Like not that she's necessarily going to take pleasure about rearranging your face, about putting an abrupt left turn in Heather Joe Clark's nose. Doesn't seem to have too many misgivings. She's not going to think about it. Yeah. And more than she has to. So I agree, Alexa, you know, uh, the straw weight division needs all the fun young fighters it can get. And having Alexa Grasso be one of those now, I think is a, is a, uh, an important development for that division. She's a person that we have been waiting for to see debut in the UFC for a while now. She lived up to it. Uh, and I think it will be fun to have her around and watch her develop. And I hope that she gets that opportunity. Yeah, me too. I think the, the only real concern that I have again is that if the UFC feels like, you know what, we're running out of names to put against, uh, UNE and J chick and we, we need to do something here. That's, I think, how you end up getting pushed into that fight before you're ready. Um, and yeah, I think that you, you give her, even just if you could give her a year, you know, if you could give her a year, then I'll be more interested in it, I think. Next question comes from Devin Scott, who, if it's the same Devin Scott, almost got us investigated by the United States Postal Service this past week, sending us a, <laughs> a, a box of alcohol from north of the border. Okay. Uh, and not packing it up too tight. Pretty obviously glass bottles rattling around inside the box. Huh, all right. And uh, yours truly was treated to a stern talking to <laughs> when he went down to check the EBO box. Oh, that is delightful so thanks for, for that, me. Devin Scott. Uh, he writes, so the John Jones saga stepped onto the precipice of conclusion today. Uh, precipice of conclusion, an awesome John Grisham novel, by the way. <laughs> Apparently, John Jones uh, was took a tainted sexual enhancement pill Sound familiar? Question mark. Anyways, he took USADA to arbitration to negotiate a lesser suspension and ended up with the maximum one year regardless. But he also has to face the NSAC as well. My question is, what is your opinion of the NSAC, NSAC ruling to be? Uh, will they match USADA or give the maximum punishment possible? I think the latter, as the clowns at the NSAC will want to show everyone who has the most influence and power. Do you agree? As a side note... Uh, Chael Sonnen announced an EBI. What's EBI mean? 
uh, Eddie Bravo. Oh, okay, uh, Eddie Bravo Invitational. Yeah, match between Old Man Dan Henderson and John Jones on December 11th. Is that Is true? It, I think I don't think it's the Eddie Bravo thing. I think it's whatever they. Oh, it would be Submission Underground. Yeah, right? that's the thing that Chael does. Right, but I think Portland. yeah, he's just thinking about it as part of. As a similar kind of deal with similar kind of rules, they're gonna have. So, is that true? Dan Henderson's gonna wrestle with John Jones in some kind of submission grappling match. I saw this on the internet. Is that gonna be in Portland, Oregon? Because that's pretty close. That's <laughs> man. If I would, it wasn't Portland, I would, uh, Oregon, I could go for a road trip. I would consider going out to watch that. Just you mean? I bet we could get tickets to Submission Underground. I bet it would not be too difficult for us to get tickets. You know, maybe we hit a food truck or two. Well, yeah. How, how else would we eat? We're going to be in Portland, Oregon. Well, I, I mean, there is I always get a two grilled strip cheese club sandwiches buffet, but... with a hamburger in the middle and two grilled cheese sandwiches on top. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to get the thing where it's like where they not only give you fried chicken, but also like fried macaroni and cheese and fried coleslaw and the whole deal. Like that's that's where I'll be if you need me. Did they impose the one year suspension on John Jones just to let the embarrassment subside? Is that what we did here? Like, just go ahead and take a year off, John. We don't want anybody to remember your boner pills when okay. you come back. Let's talk about the boner pills uh, because it seems like we're going to make a, uh, a connection here between the Anderson Silva, uh, which I believe was Thai sex juice, if we want to be – I believe that's the technical term. Different thing. Yeah, for what uh, Anderson Silva popped for. Um, and John Jones is, though – I know we're going to like be like, hey, hey, isn't he just doing that same defense that Anderson Silva did? He did seem to have a little more behind his. Because Anderson Silva's, if you'll recall, was my friend Marco in the gym gave me this this sex juice that was from Thailand. Uh, I don't know where he got it from. He just gave it to me. I took it. Lo and behold, it had a bunch of steroids in it. Uh, and that's why I find myself here. John Jones's was more like a friend at the gym. Here's his name, gave me what he said was Cialis. It was not Cialis, it was something different. He got it from this website. They went to the website, got their own, you, you saw them, what I mean by they, they went to the website, got their own fake Cialis, tested it, found the stuff that he popped positive for. So there is a little more evidence behind his claim than it was the old Thai sex juice claim that Anderson Silva tried to use. Yeah, John Jones's chain of evidence seems to be a little bit more intact than uh, than Anderson Silva's. And the USADA ruling that kind of said, hey, we don't think that he was trying to cheat, that he is intentionally trying to dope, but he was irresponsible uh, for these following reasons. So there he ends up with the one-year suspension. One thing that I think is encouraging out of this is we talked before about the UFC having to meet those earnings goals. Uh, and they have to meet them by, you know, the end of June 2017. Basically, this puts John Jones out until July of 2017. So he can't help him. And, you know, he's, he wasn't exactly Conor McGregor or Ronda Rousey, but he was on that next tier down for them. They, you could count on John Jones to, if you given the right opponent to give you some pretty big pop on pay-per-view. Now he's not going to be able to help you in this critical time for the UFC. That gives me a little more faith that, like, the UFC, can't really exert much influence on USADA. Yeah, that's a good point, especially if if we have reason to believe maybe Conor McGregor takes a break early in 2017, which obviously remains to be seen. We don't know what exactly he will say after the Eddie Alvarez fight, especially if we believe that this could be Ronda Rousey's last fight on December 30th or one of her last fights, as one she told of her last fights. Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, but there is some speculation that this is it for her, the last one, the last go-round. Uh, that would put the UFC in a tough spot to make those earnings goals 
with basically all of they are all of their well-known personality draws off the table for the first half of 2017. Uh, hopefully that they they won't run out and sign Kid Cash or some you know aging professional wrestler because they feel like they need to to pop the the pay-per-view buy rate up. Uh, do I have to do the thing where I talk about professional athletes? Uh, getting off-brand Cialis from their buddy in the gym and then taking it. Do I have to do that? Talk I, about how that is unbelievable to me, that you would do that? Wait, you're saying that you find it literally unbelievable, that you don't think that actually happened? No, the, 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 the saddest part is that I find it pretty believable. <laughs> and that makes me feel like just pounding my head against the table. Like, I don't think I would take a Cialis that you gave me. I don't, and I nobody feel like... drug tests you. That's the thing. <laughs> like, if I gave you some of my off-brand Cialis that I got on my last trip to Mexico or that I bought through this shady-ass website, themaclife.com, uh, and you could take it with impunity. Like, no one would care. <laughs> no one would show up to drug test you. You are not subject to, like, one of the more invasive drug testing policies in in sports, right? Where Usada can show up and test you any, basically any time they want to, and the only recourse you have is to answer the door with a gun. They can just do that. They can do that to John Jones at any time and Anderson Silva, and still these guys are like, oh, off-brand sexual enhancement pill from my buddy at the gym? I mean, Why, yes, I will wash this down with tonight's end-of-the-night cocktail. Well, he seemed to believe that it was on-brand, so, and he, according to their case before the, the arbitration, uh, even called Malkikawa, his manager, to be like, is it cool if I take Cialis? Is that, is that banned or anything? And he said, no, 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 it's fine. You can go ahead, go ahead and take that Cialis, playa. You'll be fine. And, and now Malkikawa knows that he has to ask his fighters every single time that this happens, did you get it from a rando at the gym? <laughs> like, that's a question he must ask now. I mean, maybe it's like one of these things where, you go to the restaurant and you ask for Dr. Pepper and they're like, we have Mr. Pibb, but they won't even know. We'll just go ahead and put it. We don't want to have the conversation about is Mr. Pibb okay. We'll just put it in there. No one will know. It'll be fine. And then what do you know? It's not fine. These men could go to any doctor of their choosing in America, professional athletes. And you can't tell me that some of the dudes in the gym don't know a doctor that you could go to. Yeah, get a little loose with the prescription pad. You know what I'm saying? There's a better idea. Get a referral instead of (laughs) like getting a vial full of weird pills. Pro tip. Okay, I'm writing this down. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern you would like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days when we're not recording the podcast it's short it's informative we would like to believe that occasionally it's funny if you don't like it it's really easy to unsubscribe some people getting really really mad about your continued reliance on political stories in in our in case you missed it section in the uh, Breakfast of Champions newsletter where we try to provide a good read from the week. Right. That, and they're saying the length, which they don't have to click on, which they're not really asked to read any of the content from. Yes. yes. 
they're angry yes. about that. Yes. But I don't know what to tell them. A guy wrote us this week to refer to the New Yorker as a quote unquote far left uh, magazine. All right. Okay. I mean, that tells you, I guess, where they're coming from. Yeah. The Pulitzer giving out far left awards over there, I guess. Anyway, uh, that's going to do it. We're going to get started with round number one. That starts right now. Ben, how much money you got in your pocket right now? Four dollars. You've got four dollars in cash? That's right. You would have had six if you hadn't bought that coffee at the gas station before you showed up here? I got that coffee at a reputable coffee shop, and before that, I got my hair cut and paid in cash, so it's been a big day spending-wise for me. How are they doing over at Sport Clips today? uh, Was there a line? Was there a waiting waiting list at all, or did you just roll right in and get the MVP uh, massage and, and hair trimming. You're making a fool of yourself right now. Look at my hair. You you know I went to the best hair salon in town. <laughs> Looks budget to me, man. Looks budget. All right, so let's say we took your $4 and the $30 that I have in my pocket. Let's see it. Put the money on the table. Would, I don't buy it. Would you be surprised to know that we could take that $34 and get underdog money on Eddie Alvarez right now? How much underdog money? Well, I'm talking about plus 135, plus 138. Okay, minor underdog money. That's still something. And as the minority investor in this (laughs) scenario, I don't know that you have cause to quibble at the odds that we're able to get. Already, I don't like the power dynamic shaping up in this hedge fund. Uh, That would not surprise me if only because I think Conor McGregor has so many passionate fans that they're going to move the line a little bit. Uh, just by their love of throwing money down on their guy. See, that's what I wondered. If the fact that you can get plus money on Eddie Alvarez right now is a reflection of who odds makers think will actually win this fight, or if it's just a desperate plea to get someone, anyone to bet on someone besides Conor McGregor. Yeah, and it's not even, you know, it's not like it's two to one or three to one odds or anything. So I'm not that surprised. However, I don't know. You know, it, when I'm looking at this one and trying to decide which way it'll go, I could see it playing out a lot of different ways. Yeah, well, the, I think one of the interesting and exciting things about this fight is that it's another one of those ones that when I think about it, I'd have no idea how it will really go. Uh, aside from the fact that I, my suspicion is that if Eddie Alvarez cannot get knocked out, in the first round, that the physical advantages may well shift toward him, just considering, you know, the, the data that we have on Conor McGregor and what we've seen from him in his last couple of fights. And the fact that Eddie Alvarez, while he has this, you know, a reputation as an exciting kind of uh, straightforward striker uh, who also has pressure wrestling, he's been a little bit more cagey. I don't know that I would go so far as to say Eddie Alvarez is a cagey fighter, but he has been cagey-ish, cagey-er, increasingly cagey since making his UFC debut, which he lost to Donald Cerrone uh, uh, back in September of 2014. He, he seems to have a little bit more uh, strategery going on. And uh, if he, I, I think that he comes into this fight knowing that probably Conor McGregor's biggest advantage will be straightforward uh, power. 
Well, but he's know, also Eddie Alvarez. So if he went out there and got suckered into a slugfest and got knocked out in the first round, I would also not be surprised. Yeah, well, I think I would have agreed that Eddie Alvarez's ring generalship and experience all over the damn globe as a fighter and his veteran savvy, I think I would have agreed that that would be more of a factor before seeing Conor McGregor in the Nate Diaz rematch. Because I think we saw... Uh, kind of an education in process there when you compare those two fights where, you know, he was kind of lunging after Nate Diaz, expending a lot of energy trying to get after him in that first fight, trying to just do the Conor McGregor thing where he thinks, all right, if I can just land this left hand, uh, then we can go eat. And it didn't really work out that way. And, you know, he wasn't really prepared for what happens after that. And in the second fight, he was. He, he was a lot more disciplined. Uh, you know, he, he certainly had his moments where he, that he had to battle through, but he did it. You know, questions about whether he had the the heart to go through those tough moments, I think were, were kind of answered in that rematch. That one makes me think like he he learned a lot leading up to and in that fight. Uh, and I, I do think a lot of this one is going to come down to who stays more disciplined in their game plan. Because Conor McGregor would love to get you, uh, you know, bobbing and weaving and trying to lunge in there at him. That's, that's what he lives for. Uh, and Eddie Alvarez... I could maybe see him getting sucked into doing that. Then again, if you tell me it's going to be five rounds of Eddie Alvarez clinching Conor McGregor up against the cage, I guess I could see that too. I just wonder, can you do that for five rounds? Yeah, that's that's an awful long time to do it without giving uh, McGregor at least some time to uncork the the left hand. And some of that, you know, whether or not that that proves to be the turning point in the fight probably comes down to whether the one-touch power that he used to to terrify people at featherweight and used to knock out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds will follow him up to 155 because it didn't seem like it followed him all the way to 170 to fight fellow 155 pound fighter Nate Diaz. Uh, but Diaz also is known to have a hell of a chin. Uh, so that's just another unknown in this fight, which uh, is part of the, the uncertainty would to, that leads me to not really have a clue as to what we're going to see out there this weekend. And let me just say, uh, as an addendum, I think that that's awesome. Yeah. I'm really excited for this fight. I think it's a terrific fight. Uh, in fact, there's nothing that I don't like about it. It's the bona fide champion versus champion super fight that the UFC promised us in 2013 and is just getting around to delivering to us now. It's kind of like a, 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 you know, opportunities like this don't come around very often, even in the most remarkable careers. And the fact that Conor McGregor is going out to try to become, however briefly, the first fighter to simultaneously hold two UFC belts in two different weight classes is exciting. And I think, frankly, uh, it's worth the fact that he was able to vault over a backlog of challengers in the UFC's most competitive division in order to land this fight. I just think it's uh it's worth it's worth putting that on hold to do this. Now, if Conor McGregor wins, then I think you have a lot of really interesting questions on your hands because while it's worthwhile to put the lightweight division on hold in order to have this fight, I don't think you can put it on hold for much longer than this fight. Right. I mean, there's going to be when you say a lot of interesting questions, you could also substitute the word problems. Because it's interesting when you see some of the comments Conor McGregor has been making before this fight, that basically he's the only one who doesn't get told what to do by the UFC. And 
you know, it's a usual kind of Conor McGregor bluster, but there also is clearly some truth behind it. He's the one who, when the UFC, you know, they go out there on TV and say, well, here's what we're going to have him do. Here's what he's going to have to do, who clearly gets to say, nope, I've decided differently. And then his version is usually what ends up happening. So, and, you know, when we saw those kind of financial figures come out, that gives you a clue as to why, you know, he, he is, he's, he might not be the whole show, but he is a huge portion of the show. So he does get to call his own shots there. And so it's one thing for the UFC to say, all right, like we're going to make some decisions about these belts, uh, after we get through this one. I mean, you're going to make those decisions, I guess, kind of by consent to some degree. Uh, and we don't know exactly what he's going to say. I mean, my, my gut is, yeah, he's probably going to say something about how he wants to take some time off, perhaps for family reasons, uh, to which I'm sure Dana White will go on a red-faced rant either publicly or privately about how it wouldn't have to be Conor McGregor having the actual baby. He, <laughs> he doesn't have to actually do that kind of stuff. What are we waiting for? Um, but, you know, he, he could really hold up those two divisions for longer than anybody would like. And I'd be curious to see at what what the breaking point is for the UFC and their patience with that. I would think the breaking point in terms of having him be the featherweight champion will be Sunday morning if he wins, right? Like, he, unless he he has a stated agenda to go back down to featherweight and defend that title, I don't know how much longer you can keep it on ice. I mean, to this point, it hasn't really uh, affected the forward progress of 145 that much because they did go ahead and and make Jose Aldo the interim champion after he defeated Frankie Edgar. Uh, but you can't have that indefinitely. I feel like you need to have, especially if you're going to be searching around for pay-per-view events early in 2017, uh, you, you need to have a specific plan in place to, to, to get the nine or ten titles that you have now out there in front of the people. Uh, and, and so... You know, something's going to have to give if McGregor wins this fight and and uh, and has both those belts. Uh, he's going to have to defend one or the other of them pretty quickly, I would think. And, and you know, the other one probably needs to be vacated uh, unless he's going to keep up just kind of like a dizzying competitive pace. Which all indications are he's going to do the opposite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We know that he has this big announcement coming up after the fight. Uh, the UK Sun has reported that it will be him taking some time off to, in the words of its headline, quote-unquote, settle down with longtime girlfriend Dee Devlin. Uh, and, you know, the, there's been some uh, developments around his lifestyle brand, I guess you could say, the Mac Life, the MacLife.com is starting a, a, some kind of diet and exercise thing, which let me say, if Conor McGregor teases this big announcement and then gets on the mic after it's after the fight, and and invites us all to sign up for the MacLife program at themaclife.com. <laughs> Not impressed. Yeah. Not impressed. No, nor will I be. I I know how to grill my own chicken breasts. Thank you very much. Uh does the lightweight title does the lightweight division go back to normal if Eddie Alvarez wins? Is that the best thing you can hope for if you're Tony Ferguson or Khabib Nurmagomedov? Yeah, that is the best thing you can hope for and I think that that's exactly what will happen. If Eddie Alvarez wins, I like his promise, uh, his Donald Trumpian promise to make the UFC great again by going back to just taking on contenders. Uh, it will do far fewer pay-per-views, I'm sure, but I think that that is what kind of needs to happen there, especially if Eddie Alvarez comes out of there and then the order gets a little more predictable. You're going to look down and say, like, all right, who is the guy who has the best case who also happens to be 
available when we need him. The same way the UFC has done that stuff in the past. If Conor McGregor wins, and even if he does decide, like, all right, I want to go ahead and defend this lightweight title in three or four months, you know he could say, and I want to give Nate Diaz that rubber match just so we can settle this once and for all, and the UFC would just look at T. Ferg and Nurmi and be like, sorry, dudes, but, you know, stay by the phone. Maybe something will change. Uh, that it's kind of an all bets are off kind of scenario if Conor McGregor wins. If Eddie Alvarez wins, you you know either T. Ferg or Nurmi are going to get screwed, but not both of them. Yeah, uh, stylistically, I think it's a great fight. Obviously, it's steeped in intrigue. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I will be looking forward to tuning in and seeing it on Saturday. Hopefully, uh, no one slips on a banana peel between now and then. Do you want to do? Are you fucking kidding me? And then we will move on to round number two. Sure. Ben, this week, my are you fucking kidding me is very straightforward. It seemed like your boy Charles Oliveira didn't even try. Didn't even get close to making the limit to, for his fight against Ricardo Lamas uh, at the Ultimate Fighter Latin America Season 3 live finale and then went out there and coughed up the second round submission loss. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? This catch weight was at 155 pounds. <laughs> also known as, if you wanted to, just a different division. Yeah. Uh, and, by the way, he had to show up at the arena at, I believe, 165. Yes. And wasn't on the mark at first and had to go and then cut again, like three hours before the fight. Jesus Christ. That's not, that's not really You gotta think it healthy. had something to do with the altitude or something. I mean. Really? Because everybody was even, at the same damn altitude. Yeah, well, you ended up having three catch weights. Okay. On this, well, on this fight card. Oliveira just being the most pronounced one because he invented his own weight class. Very pronounced fight indeed. Well, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned weight cutting on this tough Latin America three finale card because Joe Soto, who took a, a, a short notice fight, uh, and then went out there and won his pretty quickly via heel hook over, uh, Marco Beltran. Uh, he mentioned his own weight-cutting travails, which were losing 24 pounds in five days. That doesn't sound healthy. No. Uh, here's a quote that I would like to draw your attention to from my very own website, MMA Junkie. It took my team. They were picking me up off the floor and throwing me in the sauna. They were helping me the whole way. I was falling asleep because I didn't sleep the night before. They shaved my head. They shaved all the hair off my body. Now, I put a little emphasis on that last line just because yeah. I want to make sure you I got liked it. it. A little theatricalism there. They shaved all the hair off Joe Soto's body. First of all, I saw him in that fight. Pretty sure he had eyebrows. So don't let's make sure our words mean what we think they mean. But you know, you know, they must have shaved something else other than his head, if you put it that way. Because otherwise, you would just stop in the, after they shaved my head. And I guess. If your cornermen care that much about you, you get the right people behind you. Also, are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Uh, that makes me feel like me and Joe Soto have different definitions of the word help. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something right now, Chad Dundas. If you were in a situation where you had to make weight to get that money, and you you said, "Look, there's," I'm looking at you right now, at least four or five pounds of hair on your body. And you needed someone to help you get rid of it. You were too exhausted to move. Couldn't possibly do it. I'd tell you, you know what? They take 20% of your money. It's not that bad. You still have some money left. You still got 80%. That's not so bad. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. 
Double Chad, one of three, three title fights on the UFC 205 main card. You got Tyron Woodley and the Wonder Man, Stephen Thompson, about to do the damn thing in a battle for the future of the welterweight division. And as you said, this is a big moment for karate and for strip mall dojos everywhere. I gotta say, I kind of like the Wonder Man's chances to go out there and become welterweight champion. Am I crazy? Well, you, you're obviously not crazy according to the odds makers because they got Stephen Thompson going off as something approaching a two to one favorite here. Which, if if you're Tyron Woodley, uh, might be some bulletin board material. Yeah, that I might mean, be you a, just knocked out Robbie Lawler. You get no respect. You won three in a row. Uh, you are sixteen and three. I don't know, man. That seems like maybe a clipping from the newspaper you might want to uh, tape to your mirror if you're Tyron Woodley, knowing that you are going to be that big of an underdog to the Wonder Man here. I don't know if you're crazy or not, because this is another fight where I don't really know what to expect. Obviously, Stephen Thompson, who is 13-1 and one now uh, and has only lost that really that fight to Matt Brown really early in his UFC career. It was his second fight in the octagon and has since uh, rattled off a string of, of victories, including... Uh, those last three against Jake Ellenberg, Jake Ellenberger, Johnny Hendricks, and Rory McDonald, and has looked pretty goddamn impressive uh, in all of those uh, outings. So if you told me that Stephen Thompson was just going to go out there and do karate on Tyron Woodley, I I would believe you. But I also think Tyron Woodley has his own skills that that might be being overlooked here. Like you said, he did just knock out Robbie Lawler. Okay, so chart me a path to victory for Tyron Woodley. I think if you're Tyron Woodley, you want to be sticky, right? You want to uh, push the Wonder Man against the fence. You want to kind of smother that uh, flashy karate-style offense that he has. You probably want to put him on his back uh, and see So basically, you want to hear a lot of boos coming out of the, the Madison Square Garden crowd. If you're Tyron Woodley, yeah, you definitely do want to hear a lot of boos. Uh, Sweet music. And then, you know, if all else fails, I guess just sweep the leg. Right, <laughs> the karate guys are hip to that, man. You think right? they figured that oh, out? Oh yeah, by yeah, now? yeah. That was that was a long time ago for them. They, those those wounds they'll never forget. If if the Wonder Man starts to do that crane kick thing, if he stands in the middle of a cage with the, with his arms up doing the crane kick, I would say just leave. <laughs> just go take five. Wait till he he gets tired of waiting. Or you know, do the thing where you just start pointing to your eye and look over at Herb Dean. Make the timeout motion. Yeah, see, when he, uh, see if Herb will grant you a timeout. Yeah, which is a new thing these days. Um, I'm curious though how the karate style plays against a dude who you got to worry about taking you down and smothering you, because if you rely on your kicks to maintain your distance and to keep the other guy guessing, uh, and to keep him from getting close enough to land one of those big bombs or smother you up against the fence. You're we've we've seen before where a lot of guys who rely on the kicking game get a little hesitant with it when they have to worry about being taken down by an excellent wrestler who, once he's on top of you, can make life pretty difficult for you. Yeah, it's interesting. Just as you said that, I, I glanced here at the resume of, of Stephen Thompson. Uh, and you you just look down the list of the guys he's fought. Obviously, Rory McDonald is a a, a, a really well-rounded fighter. Uh, but when you look at Rory McDonald, Johnny Hendricks, Jake Ellenberger, Patrick Cote, Robert Whitaker and you just know how those fights went down, especially the fights against the the decorated wrestlers and Johnny Hendricks and Jake Ellenberger, uh, which both ended in, in early knockouts, 
you haven't seen maybe Stephen Thompson go out there and fight a lot of guys that are going to try to implement or at least to be successful trying to implement a wrestling heavy game plan. I wonder if this is one where in the aftermath we're going to be kind of like, oh, of course. Well, I don't know. I mean, Johnny Hendricks actually might be a a fairly good comparison, at least as far as like how he will approach it. Because there's another guy where you got to worry about one big heavy punch that he has uh, and also at least the possibility of some takedowns. You could argue that Tyron Woodley is a little more willing to actually use those takedowns. But we've also seen uh, in Tyron Woodley's past where when he goes up against somebody who has a pretty good game plan for him, that he can be stymied and then does not make a whole lot of adjustments on the fly all that well. That if somebody has a good recipe for shutting down his attack, sometimes he just ends up standing there and waiting too much, which... If you're fighting a guy like Stephen Thompson, is like the worst thing you can do. You, you end up standing there not sure what to do next. That's when he just starts picking you apart. Yeah, and if you're Tyron Woodley, I don't think you can let Stephen Thompson lead the dance. I think you've got to be going after him uh, and, and getting in past that kicking range, getting in past the uh, the punching range, and, and kind of trying to wear him out. Like you want to do your best Randy Couture impression in this fight, I would think, uh, if you're Tyron Woodley. And uh, if you're Stephen Thompson, I guess you just want to do karate. Well, you know, and you remember the Stephen Thompson-Roy uh, McDonald fight where as it was getting into the later rounds and it was pretty clear that Stephen Thompson was controlling it with, you know, his, his footwork, his control of the distance, and just had a, had a masterful game plan that he stayed completely dedicated to and had great discipline in that fight. And you could tell that Roy McDonald had decided, like, all right, you got to get in there and it's going to hurt to get in there, but you you got to do it. And he was willing to take those shots in order to get in there and give himself an opportunity to do something. Uh, and, you know, it still didn't work for him. He, he kind of, you could argue that maybe he was too late in making that decision, that it was more of a last-ditch effort, and that by that point he was already kind of physically compromised by some of the punishment he'd taken. But it's not like Stephen Thompson is unfamiliar with what to do there either. I mean, he, if you're going to do the thing where you're deciding, like, all right, I'm going to do anything I have to do to get in close uh, and force him out of that style, he's willing to make you pay for that. And and it's no guarantee that you're going to be super successful once you do get in there. Yeah, and I like Stephen Thompson a lot, and I, and I think it would be a remarkable story if the karate master manages to win the UFC welterweight title because, like I said before on the podcast, the UFC itself was created to make karate dudes look silly. Like, the Gracie family came up with it for the express purpose of having Hoist Gracie take karate guys down and choke them out. So it would be a tremendous, I think, compliment to the evolution of this sport if Stephen Thompson is able to go out there and reach the pinnacle of of that division. Uh, and by beating a wrestler, the dudes right. who came along after the yeah, jiu-jitsu guys. Absolutely. I think that's definitely part of the story. Uh, just one more maybe devil's advocate thing about Stephen Thompson, though. You look down the list of the guys he's fought, which I just read. When you think about the time in their careers that he fought Rory McDonald, Johnny Hendricks, and Jake Allenberger, they were, those guys were also not necessarily riding the wave of success when they well, came true. into the cage against Stephen Thompson. So I wonder if that is uh, too ethereal to kind of make a- a- any difference. But in Tyron Woodley, clearly you're going to get a guy who is at the top of his game and, uh, you know, despite the fact he himself is 34 years of age, uh, is certainly at his apex, we would think, as a, uh, a competitor. Yeah. That, that, that's a fair point. Do you think, I mean, for 
the future of the UFC's welterweight division. It seems pretty clear to me that if I'm the one out there counting the money in the, the UFC offices, I'm kind of hoping that the Wonder Man is wearing the strap by the end of the night. He seems like your better bet for, for selling future pay-per-views. Well, yeah, one of the things that you think if you're WME IMG, if you come into your UFC ownership uh, equipped to do any one thing arguably better than the Fertitta brothers did, it might be turning people into stars, right? Or at least to be able to take people that you feel like have potential, have some charisma, and put them out there in front of the people and just let the viewers kind of decide who is going to be, you know, the the next big draws. Uh, and I think Stephen Thompson is one of the people who's probably on that list of of people that seem like they have that that kind of like innate charisma or have something uh, notable about them. Um, and Tyron Woodley hasn't been a particularly big draw throughout his UFC career. Although like every time I, I see, you know, every time I get the opportunity to see a, a, like those videos that Tyron Woodley has been making from inside his camp while he's the champion or to see him, uh, in an interview setting or press conference setting, I also think he has some of that potential too. And it just hasn't been tapped into and, and UFC fans haven't necessarily been as receptive to it yet. I just always kind of feel bad shortchanging Tyron Woodley as a guy who can't appeal to fans because I feel like every time I've taken the time to sort of investigate what he brings to the table, I come away pretty impressed. I think he's one of those guys where um, it's a sort of Jose Aldo situation yeah. where the best Tyron Woodley might be the kind of pissed off at getting no love and no respect Tyron Woodley. You maybe wish he'd he'd crank up the volume on that one the way uh, Chael Sonnen likes to say guys have to crank up the volume on their their natural personalities and their natural tendencies. If you went all the way out there and said, you know what, to hell with all of you people who who don't respect my skills uh, for whatever reason, uh, to hell with the UFC that didn't want me to be here in the first place. Uh, now I'm here and you're never going to take this belt away from me. Man, I think that could be a lot of fun for people. No, I agree. I agree. And I guess we can hope that Stephen Thompson made it to the arena. He's not still wandering around Times Square with his backpack on, wide-eyed. <laughs> looking up and, at all the lights. Yeah, staring up, craning his neck to look up at the buildings. That's Calling gonna, home to tell him how you can get a, a slice of pizza 24 hours a day in this city. <laughs> That's going to do it for round number two. We're going to get started with round number three right now. Ben, I know that I'm not the prettiest one. I'm not having big boobies, or I'm not American. But I want people to remember me as the best female fighter, undefeated in MMA, and the UFC champion of the world. Dear God, man, what did we do to deserve the 115-pound champion, Joanna Jedjacek? She said boobies, huh? I am not having big boobies, according to the uh, transcription from Sean Alshadi from uh, MMAfighting.com. You see, that, it's the little things that make for a great promo like that, because there's other words you could substitute there, and yet boobies is somehow the perfect one for the situation. You know, I think that there are probably some horny dudes on the internet that would beg to differ with Joanna Yedjechik's 
cans? Somewhat self-deprecating oh, okay. uh, appraisal of herself, since she seems to be uh, pretty popular with a certain kind of individual out there who's watching these fights. But I also feel like one of the keys to her popularity is this sort of like self-effacing and quirky uh, style that she has that is not that makes her a marketable commodity different from any of the other uh, female superstars that we've seen the UFC try to create. Right, exactly. And not having the big boobies might be one of them. Well, yeah, and that's only just a part of it. I think that the thing that, uh, to me, makes her so interesting, other than she's awesome to watch fight, is, for one thing, she comes across as completely genuine, not anybody who's trying to craft a a certain image for us uh, that she thinks that we'll buy. But also, it's this blend of what seems to be a genuine meanness, but also somehow uh, warm and uh, affectionate yes. and like friendly. She wants to take selfies with Goofy at Disneyland and put them on her Instagram right. account, and then turns into a tiny alien being that wants to climb up your nose into your brain at the stare down. Yeah, and it's it's a hard thing to do to be that fighter who is like mean and scary, but not an asshole. Like not, it's not put on. It's not, uh, you know, uh, some kind of like fake, terrifying thing. It just seems to be, you know, like I I remember Greg Jackson describing it once as. Like a pit bull who walks up to you uh, with its tail wagging right before it bites you in the leg, that kind of a thing. That she does manage to give off that that sort of an aura, and it seems like exactly like who her personality is. And then when you see what she's actually capable of in the fight, you just think, "I hope she's champion for a long time, so we can get to watch this over and over and over again." Yeah, the thing that's kind of amazing about Joanna Jacek is that she takes all of those like intangible qualities, this kind of like. Uh, a very genuine appeal, like you said, that is uh, different than we've seen like a, a lot of the other women's MMA fighter, high profile women's MMA fighters that have been thrust forward as, as stars. It's different than that. She takes like that appeal and, and matches it with 12 and 0, six fights in a row in the UFC, just fucking piecing people up out there with a cold-blooded uncaring that is kind of remarkable. Uh, and now she takes on Karolina Kovalkiewicz at UFC 205, uh, defense of her, her women's strawweight championship. Uh, Kovalkiewicz is also from Poland. They, I believe, have fought before as amateurs. Is that right? Or at least in a kickboxing match. Uh and uh, Kovalkiewicz obviously is a slightly lesser-known commodity. She's about to uh, to make her own fourth fight in the UFC here. At, at I would U- say more than slightly lesser-known. Well, okay, an entirely lesser-known commodity. I mean, <laughs> yes. she she did beat Rose Namajunas at UFC 201, which is kind of like her coming out party at a split decision, but a win nonetheless. And she's also undefeated in MMA. I just wonder if there's any reason to believe that she will have a chance here against Joanna Champion. Well, I mean, we've seen her. She definitely has some skills and she's tough and everything. But I I also think that if you have to go out there and stand there across from uh, Joanna and Jacek for five rounds, you really got to have, A, the ability to to change on the fly if things aren't going well the way you thought they would, um, but B, you got to have something to threaten her with because when she 
gets in that zone where she feels like it's all offense for her, that she's she's not worried about anything that's coming back. That's when she's just absolutely brutal. I and mean, you see that sometimes in some of these later fight, like later rounds in some of these fights, uh, because she just doesn't seem to get tired, and other people do. And when she gets in that zone where she doesn't have to worry too much about the counters or about anything that you present. Uh, she just unleashes on people and she can, she can threaten you so many different ways there. That's, I think, when you're really in big trouble. And I just, it's hard for me based on just what we've seen of Carolina Kovalkiewicz imagining what that thing is going to be that she's going to threaten Joanna with. Yeah. The, yeah, J Chick's offense is like death by a thousand tiny cuts, right? Uh, by the end, the end of the, the fight, by the championship rounds, you're bleeding from all over. And even though there was maybe not, any one really significant, memorable blow, uh, you're just kind of falling apart. Well, and, I, you know, it's not like I can imagine her being less technical or being in worse shape now that she's moved to American Top Team. Right. And I don't know that we've necessarily seen yet Jacek struggle against someone who is going to bring a largely striking-based skill set to the table like that that fight the July fight with uh Claudia Gadella was was you know the toughest fight we've seen yet Jacek in in the UFC so far and the end result of it was uh Gadella managed to dominate the early part of the fight with her grappling and then eventually uh wasn't able to to sustain that for 25 minutes I think if you go out there as we expect Kovalkiewicz will you know she might have some tricks up her sleeve but we think that she'll go out there uh, with the thing that she is best at, which is striking, uh, that's going to be right into the teeth of what Joanna Gedjechik is arguably even better at, which is a stylistic problem right. for you. Well, you know, one of the things you mentioned before about uh, the thing that makes Joanna uh, Gedjechik so popular, and I, I wonder if she is popular. Like, I know she is with the hardcore fans, and the people who have actually, you know, the people with the Fight Pass subscriptions, they love them some Yuani and Jajic. And why wouldn't you? Uh, and I just wonder what it takes for, because she seems like one of those fighters where, and we've had this conversation about other people and even at times this sport itself, where you feel like if you could grab someone and sit them down and say, okay, you should see this person. Maybe you're not really into this sport. Maybe you don't really follow it, but you should see her. Uh, and then you'll care about it the next time she fights. It seems like it's just a matter of getting that word out and getting people to actually sit down and check it out. And I feel like I keep waiting for that to happen, and it, I, I don't know if it's happened yet. Yeah, well, she's been in the, – the, the interesting part about her is she's been in some pretty high-profile spots for the UFC. She was the co-main event at UFC 185 when uh, Anthony Pettis and, and uh, Rafael Dos Anjos fought for the lightweight title, and she was the co-main event you know, at UFC 193, uh, when Holly Holm defeated Ronda Rousey. Yeah. And there was and, like a million people watching that one. Yeah. 1.1 million pay-per-view buys for that one. So, you know, she's been out there in front of the, in front of the, uh, the fans, I guess you could say. And, and aside from those two pay-per-view, the, you know, the other two of her four most recent fights, she was the main event in UFC fight night events against Jessica Penne and then Claudia Gadella. So, I feel like the UFC is trying to get her out there, and I think this is another high-profile placement for her, obviously, on UFC 205. And so, uh, you know, whether or not the casual fan will gravitate to her remains to be seen, because I think that the, the, the thing that I think you're trying to get at is that she appeals really strongly to uh, 
inside the bubble to people that are all in on this shit because we understand how kind of like unique and awesome she is, whether or not that translates to like the people that are going to buy UFC 205 because they think Conor McGregor is funny. Uh, I don't know. Yes, yeah. that remains to be seen. Although I would put, I think yeah, Jacek deserves to be on the list along with people like Stephen Thompson that that could be a bigger deal uh, if they got the opportunity to be presented in like their own kind of unique way. Yeah, and that that is an interesting idea that those kinds of fighters will serve as an interesting test case for WMEIMG as the new owners if they can really, as they say, leverage their network and do something different, do something more with some of these potential stars that haven't quite managed to break out uh, than the UFC was ever able to do. I'll, I'll be interested to see it because I can also see a lot of those casual people who just hear Conor McGregor is fighting this weekend and they buy it and if they look at the fight card, uh, they look at this one and just see all right, looks like a couple Eastern European women whose names are mostly consonants. Uh, I don't know, just, you know, I'll be in the kitchen. Call me when McGregor's up. Yeah, I think that's uh, <laughs> a hindrance for sure. She is the biggest favorite on the main card. How, what's, what are the odds on that? She one? is minus like 400. Ooh. And Kovalkiewicz is plus about between 290 and 350. I, I realize I'm a minority investor, but I don't think we should throw our money in on this one. No, yeah. We'll, we should save it. We'll keep our $34 of seed money and we'll put that somewhere else. Yeah. Somewhere safer. This is see, mutual this, funds. We'll put this it is in how mutual fortunes funds. are built right here. All right, Ben, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, we mentioned in listener mail the, the whole John Jones situation after going to arbitration over uh, the, the knockoff Cialis. Uh, then ended up being contaminated, and and the ESPN story about it. There is uh, there's some information from the written epilogue that USADA provided, uh, and I want to read from that now. On the evidence before the panel, Jones is not a drug cheat. He did not know that the tablet he took contained prohibited substances or that those substances had the capacity to enhance sporting performance. However, by his imprudent use of what he pungently referred to as a dick pill, he has not only lost a year of his career, but an estimated $9 million. I'm just saying, whatever wordsmith over there at USADA is responsible for writing that, I feel like they had some fun here. And I feel like, uh, I feel like we're all better for it in a strange way. Just saying. Pungently referred to as a dick pill. <laughs> we see what you're doing over there. You saw the people, uh, Ben, I don't want to start to sound like a broken record, but I, uh, uh, I simply must just say again this week, these six fight main cards have got to go, man. Because even when you get an awesome one, like we had last weekend, uh, where you start out with Alexa Grasso, uh, rearranging the face of Heather Joe Clark and you finish it off with the awesome fight between Tony Ferguson and Rafael Dos Anjos and you get that Diego Sanchez win where he does a damn backflip to get out of the standing guillotine choke. Uh, and Ricardo Lamas also like turns in kind of a gutsy, uh, and good performance against the, the very overweight Charles Oliveira. Like that's four really good fights and somehow, before the co-main event, I was like, should I just go to bed? Like, I may, I might not have made it through this thing if I had not, like, literally been, like, being paid to watch it and, like, knew that I was going to have to write something about it. So, man, I don't know. I'm just saying. I feel like we, we are, we could do a better service to the spectator here by cutting these things back down to, to four fights, especially when, 
you know it's like damn near 2 a.m. on the East Coast, and they're still desperately trying to get us to buy UFC 205 with some late-night Conor McGregor promos. I'm just saying. Just saying. Maybe that's what you know. people were complaining about Tony Ferguson not issuing a call-out after his win instead just saying, Viva Mexico, and walking off. Um, maybe it's because he realized it was 1.30 in the damn morning for the East Coast. Even El Kukui needs to get his rest. Yeah. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. We'll tell you all the stuff that happens at UFC 205, and we'll look ahead to the next UFC event. event. These things are going to start coming hot and heavy until the end of the year. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So say you're at a party. Okay. I like it so far. And you got a headache. Mm-hmm. And I, I offer you some aspirin for your headache, but I don't take it out of an actual container. I just take it out of my pocket, and it's just a little white pill, and I say, here. With some lint? Yeah, there's going to be a little lint on there. Are you you, or are you... I'm like, me. You have a Russian accent? No, I'm, I'm me in this situation. But I do have a wild... Yeah, I would probably have.